Our reading this morning is from uh, Mark's Gospel, chapter 12, starting at verse 18. Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be, since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You're badly mistaken. This is God's word. Mark chapter 12 this morning, this amazing passage about the resurrection. Hopefully you'll leave with your mind on heaven. Let's pray that that will be so. Almighty God, we come to you this morning to your, uh, your authoritative, sufficient word, and we pray for a blessing from it, however new we are to Christianity or however familiar. Amen. I always found the afterlife the hardest part of religion to swallow. When I was young, Jesus seemed like a decent guy with some powerful messages but the afterlife, what did the lucky people who qualified to get in do all day in the afterlife? And it's not just one day, it's forever. It all seems so preposterous and even rather frightening. That's a quote from Colin Blakemore, who's the professor of neuroscience at the University of London. I had an article where they went around asking um, lots of famous people qualified in various ways to, to speak about the possibility of an afterlife. And you get some interesting responses. Colin Blakemore, oh, it's rather frightening. I, I, I don't really like the thought of it at all. Of course, on the, on the uh, aggressive, antagonistic end of the spectrum, you also get people like Richard Dawkins, reliably antagonistic towards the possibility of an afterlife. Do you believe in the afterlife? A reporter said to him, no. Indeed, he said, um, there, is, there isn't any good evidence for the resurrection. I suppose I would have expected it from Richard. Uh, I find that apart from the antagonist again, there are also people who sort of position themselves in a, I'd like to believe it, but I find it difficult sort of way. Do you know the reason there's no off switch on the iPhone? You've got, you've got an iPhone, you, to turn it off, you have to hold down the lock switch and then swipe something on the screen. It's because Steve Jobs told his biographer as he was dying of cancer, I never put an on-off switch on the iPhone because I don't want there just to be a moment where you cease to exist. Isn't that interesting? I, I, I want to believe in an afterlife. I find it difficult, and I'm sort of longing for it in my life. And yet he still said, I, I don't ultimately believe. Of course, at that end of the spectrum, there are also people who just find it plain unfashionable, not very vogue to, to, to stake your claim on something like the afterlife. Sadly, I think that's sometimes the case with ministers in the Church of England. 
There was a poll done 15 years ago where they asked 2,000 Church of England clergy whether they believed in the resurrection. A third said they didn't. They doubted or disbelieved in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I was quite cheered to discover that they also phoned up the Archbishop of Canterbury specifically and they said, do you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? And his assistants got back to them and said, the Archbishop's asked me to say he's firmly in the yes camp. So there's hope yet. Okay, so a spectrum of belief, of, of disbelief about the resurrection. We are in, here in Mark chapter 12 where the resurrection, the resurrection topic comes up. And um, I liken it, I hope helpfully, to a, a summer test series in cricket. You know, the, the religious leaders keep sending their best players to Jesus Christ in the temple courts. The very the focus of Israelite life. And they keep bowling their best balls. And he keeps smashing them for six, again and again and again. So our series is called Challenging Questions, which Jesus keeps answering incredibly well. And today it's the turn of the Pharisee, Test 11, to come and give a, have a go. The Pharisees are not thick, okay? They're intelligent men. They were the religious leaders of the time. If anything, they were the aristocracy of the Jewish Sanhedrin. They sort of had just a little edge over the Pharisees, who were a slightly different sect. And the Sadducees, as you'll see in our passage, I'd love you to have it open. In verse 18, say there is no resurrection. You see, Mark's just cluing us in there. He didn't have to write that. He's just saying, these guys, by the way, no resurrection, that's going to matter in what just is about to happen. Always found it a helpful thing to remember the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. That's why they were sad, you see. See, as distinct from the Pharisees. So there you go. My friend told me I couldn't include that, but I've always found it a helpful thing. Here we are. There's an outline on the back of your sheets. First of all, the scholars say there's no resurrection. Verses 18 to 23. The Sadducees come with this question to Jesus, and it's a naughty question. Have a look at verse 18 again. Sadducees who say there's no resurrection came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Moses wrote for us. And then they quote Deuteronomy 25. Sounds very impressive, doesn't it? God, they're quoting the Old Testament. They've really come out of the stalls. They, they must have a, a winning question here. Perhaps they're going to get Jesus out. Moses wrote for us. Very impressive, Sadducees. But then they build... The most impossible scenario on top of this Bible quotation that I think I've yet come across in the Bible. Let's have a look, okay? Verse 20. Now, there were seven brothers. So this is their hypothetical, okay? There were seven brothers, and the first one married and then died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, because that's what the law tells him to do. But he also died, leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. Here's the question, Jesus. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be? They think they've got him. I asked an actuary how likely this situation was to unfold in real everyday life. I was a bit disappointed when he said, I'd say 0.1%. It feels less likely than that to me. In in insurance terms, it feels less like a 0.1%. He did go on to say you could probably push it to a 0.01 or even a 0.001. That felt a bit more 
likely to me. You see this situation? So one woman marries seven brothers, no kids. Hypothetically, what are you going to do, Jesus? Oh, we're dealing with such a niche, such a 0.001 situation here. It's a naughty question. But there is force behind it because it is talking about the resurrection. It's talking about something utterly central in life, afterlife. Is there, in fact, an afterlife, Jesus? So it deserves time and attention. I'm so glad Jesus took the time to answer it. Of course, this remains true today, right? Some people doubt the resurrection. Some scholars particularly doubt the resurrection. People with education and weight behind their opinion. I was struck by this as I went off to study at Bible College. I ended up training at Oak Hill College in North London, which is affiliated to Middlesex University. The great Middlesex University, I might say. But it doesn't... Middlesex doesn't op- occupy a place in the pantheon of higher education, I don't think. I would have liked to have gone to Cambridge University, where there's, they train vicars to be vicars in the Church of England. What, what I discovered when my wife and I were talking to a current student there is that uh, there are lecturers at one theological college in Cambridge where they just openly don't believe the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they're training vicars. I would have thought that was quite a central piece of the puzzle and they're training the next generation of ministers I I didn't feel it was safe for me to go to the higher echelon of tertiary education if that's what I was going to be getting the scholars doubt the resurrection of course just understand me I don't want to be unfair to anybody in higher education this is subtle never does error walk into church and say hello I'm an error I'm a theological heresy shoot me down this is a subtle thing. So the, the fashionable thing in the academy at the moment is, is probably to say that it's a spiritual thing. The resurrection is a spiritual reality. So after you die, there'll be no body. You won't be able to touch anything. You won't actually see anybody face to face. But in your heart, you'll be resurrected in some sort of way. To which I always want to say, sorry, what? So Jesus comes and invites people to put his hands in the wounds and he eats fish in front of people to prove it's a spiritual what? The scholars doubt the resurrection. And here's Jesus' answer, okay? Here's his answer to a, an objection that is both ancient and modern. He's pretty angry. Verse 24, have a look. Jesus replied, Are you not in error? Because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. You, wow, catch the force behind that. You don't know the Bible or what God can do. That's an answer in two parts. We'll go on to see that he gives his answer just in two parts, so we'll just look at each of them in turn. He sort of flips it around in the way he does it in the following verses, but we'll keep the original order in verse 24. Okay, so two-part answer. First of all, you don't know the scriptures, verses 26 and 27. Second of all, you don't know the power of God. First of all, you don't know the scriptures. Let's see what he says about the scriptures in verse 26. Now, about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. 
just a little bit of explanation required here because Jesus is meeting them on the Old Testament turf they came to him on and he's arguing back. Okay, so let me just try and explain. He's quoting Exodus chapter 3, a moment when God reveals himself to Moses, a very profound moment in the Old Testament. He says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What Jesus is saying is that God is the living God. Yes, he's the I am, but he's the God of the living Abraham, the living Isaac, and the living Jacob. So this is Jesus' argument here. Those guys are still got a hope of living as well as the living God. So there is a resurrection you should have realized. They, those guys were dead by the time Exodus 3 happened, but Jesus expects them to have got this. Incidentally, none of you are scratching your heads, but I scratched my head this week as I read this, and I thought, oh, golly, Jesus, I don't think I would have made the link. <laughs> I don't, this is quite hard logic. Not only is God alive forever, but these guys are supposed to be alive forever. It's quite difficult reasoning. And yet, and yet, these were supposed to be the religious leaders of the day who knew not just that particular verse and all the intricacies, but they were supposed to know the whole story. They were, they were supposed to know that God made big, big promises to Abraham in Genesis 12, and that Abraham died without seeing the full fruition of them. So here's the question, I think, that deserves to be asked not just of Abraham, but of every believer. When they lay you in the grave, when they put you in the ground and throw the dirt on top of you and you get buried and the the gravestone gets put up, are you bitter about that or not? Because Abraham was a guy who God made promises to and he saw like a fraction of fulfillment of that promise. And yet he wasn't bitter when they laid him in the grave. God promised him a great people in Genesis 12 and a land and a blessing. And Abraham just saw he had one son in his old age. But he wasn't bitter when he lay down in death. You see the point? So God is saying all the way through the Old Testament, were you expecting people to lay down bitter because God hadn't done anything? Because when you die, you close your eyes and the lights are snuffed out. And that's that. Are you bitter about that? Well, Abraham didn't seem to be. Isaac didn't seem to be, Jacob didn't seem to be. The hope of all the Jews throughout the Old Testament seemed to be that God has got something better, not bitter, in store. So it's the same today. Believers should be able to lay down in death, in the grave, not bitter about how little life on this earth might have had to offer, but confident that God's got something better. Jesus is laying down an expectation here for all believers that they know the scriptures. His point, you do not know the scriptures. If you had, you would have known this. Jesus, of course, who says this with some feeling, because whenever something happens to Jesus that puts some pressure on him in, in the New Testament, the scriptures just sort of tumble out of him. So when he's tested by the devil in the desert, he's just quoting scripture because he's under pressure, and that's what his mind goes to. When he's tried before the Sanhedrin and the authorities, he's just quoting scripture about Daniel 7 because that's what his mind goes to when he's under pressure. When he's being crucified and he can barely get a word in because he's suffocating on a cross, he's quoting scripture because that's where his mind goes to. So there's some feeling behind Jesus if he says, you don't know the scriptures. Of course, this is the religious leaders he's talking to as well. They were the Sadducees. They were the guys who were supposed to be in charge. If anyone knew the Bible in the whole country, come on, guys. Come on. Have you read the book? 
think if we're religious leaders of any sort, there is a reasonable expectation Jesus is laying down that we might have read the book. If we're church pastors or on staff, or if we're elders or Bible study group leaders, if we lead in the Sunday school or the international cafe, if we're personal evangelists, or we're husbands or fathers or just friends to people, don't put yourself in the situation these people find themselves in where they think they're being very clever and Jesus comes back and says, have you read the book? Do you have a Bible? Do you have a Bible in your house? Do you read the Bible? Do you read the Bible every day? Did you once read the Bible a lot and are kind of still relying on that even though it's slipped and you're excusing yourself at the moment? If so, perhaps it's time to repent. Know that you're forgiven. And know that Jesus wants you, invites you to read his book, read the scriptures. If you think of any mature Christian person that you admire, I bet you, I should be able to guarantee you that they are a person who has spent time in the Bible. Hundreds and hundreds, thousands of hours. And we will not get to that stage. We will never be that person unless we love the scriptures. Because the, the book, the Bible, is the means God has given to know him and to know about the resurrection. When I was taught rugby at school, I remember our coach saying, um, stop running with the ball, you've got to pass it along the line. And he would encourage us to, um, in, instead of trying to run sideways across the rugby pitch and trying to do everything ourselves, he would say, look, pass the ball from the scrum half to the fly half to the inside center and so on. It's quicker that way. And he encourages that, that that was the way you score points, by passing the ball along the line. You know, in a similar way, the, the message of God in the resurrection was written down in the Bible so that it might be passed on and received by other people. It was written down reliably so that it might be passed and received, digested and passed on. And every historical revival that has ever taken place has been founded on the Bible and the message in the Bible. So the message only spread about the early church and Jesus' resurrection because people wrote it down and it was able to be circulated around the Mediterranean world faster than any human being could travel. The ball was passed, received, studied, and then passed on. In the Reformation, which was celebrating the 500th birthday of this year, that was a movement based around rediscovering the Bible. So a German monk, Martin Luther, rediscovered the book of Romans in particular, studied it, realized what he had on his hands, got the Bible translated into German so that other people in his country could read it and pass the ball on. In the 18th century, there was a great revival in Britain and America called the Great Awakening. And that's when people like George Whitfield and John Wesley rediscovered biblical preaching. They discovered what they had in their hands all along and they traveled around preaching it, passing the ball on to whoever they possibly could. And in the 20th century, after the Second World War, everyone who was anyone, any scholar who had an opinion said the church is dead. After, after what's happened in this century, after the two world wars, the church has got no hope. Everything was post-war, post-truth, post-modern, post-9-11, post-church. And yet now in London there are more evangelical churches than in 
memory. And what we're trying to do is realize what we've got in our hands and pass it on. Of course, it only works if you've received and understood the scriptures so that you can pass it on to other people. Do you know the Bible? Of course, we have more than just Exodus 3 to go on. This is not just a debate about the resurrection. Jesus goes and does it. It's very profound that by the end of the gospel, he's done the resurrection himself. There's much more to talk about than he was able to engage with or the the Sadducees knew then. Okay, we have to move on. Secondly then, more briefly, not only do you not know the scriptures, you don't know the power of God. Just look at verse 25, would you? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. This is the other half of Jesus' answer. It refers to the power of God that he was talking about in verse 24. It's quite short, isn't it? This is like, oh, you're not going to be married in heaven. You should have known that. You'll be like an angel. Any more questions? Um, yes, a couple. It's quite short. His point, of course, is, is that because you'll be like an angel, presumably it'll be so different and so much better that I'm not going to worry about earthly marriage because I'm going to be like an angel. This is more about resurrection life than it is about resurrection wife. Did you ever hear in the Bible of an angel stopping for a bite to eat? I didn't. They just don't seem to be concerned with, you know, I'm a bit peckish, I might have to postpone my visit to Mary in order to go and get a snack. Did you ever hear in the Bible about an angel asking somebody out on a date? I didn't, because they had bigger things on their mind. Did you ever hear in the Bible about an angel needing a nap because they were a bit tired and they yawned as they announced their resurrection? I didn't, because they had bigger things on their mind. I remember talking to a friend years ago at university and she was very in love with her boyfriend and this was the particular stumbling point she came across with Christianity. She was quite interested in the faith. She wanted to embrace it in many ways but she, she came across this idea that there won't be marriage in heaven, earthly marriage. And she said, oh, what happened to happily ever after? Which I think is a good objection, isn't it? What did happen to happily ever after? What happened to good marriages and why would Jesus take that away? Jesus isn't aiming to teach about marriage here. He's, they've come with an objection which is essentially about the resurrection. And the marriage thing is sort of incidental. But, let me just take a moment because you do glean quite a lot for, about marriage from what the Lord Jesus says right here. Okay, So, this is why in the marriage service in church you have that line, till death us do part. That famous line, till death us do part. This is, this is largely what it's based upon because Jesus gives a doctrine, an idea of marriage which is lifelong, monogamous, faithful, one man, one woman and then the covenant breaks when you die, when one party dies. It's not happily ever after therefore. That sort of romantic fairy tale notion that I'm going to be with this person forever and ever and ever and ever and ever is not biblical. It's till you die. That's a sad thought if you love your spouse, if you've got a good marriage. I think it's also a happy thought, though, if you love your spouse, because it it prevents you from loading all of your expectation for billions and billions of years of eternity onto another human being. 
It prevents you from saying, in effect, I depend on you for my eternal happiness. And in a billion years, I'm still going to be wanting you to make me happy. And that's not a burden that another human being should have to bear. Rather, Jesus is saying, put that burden on God. Let God be the one who can provide eternal happiness for you. And your marriage covenant here on earth is designed to reflect that in its faithfulness, in its covenant keeping. Marriage is therefore a shadow of the thing that is coming. If, if you're a married Christian, you live in a shadow. You, you operate and live out a shadow covenant now of the big covenant that's coming one day with Jesus and his church. If you're a single Christian now, you skip the shadow and you go straight to the reality. I was helped by thinking about um, Charles and Susanna Spurgeon in this way. They were Victorians. They lived uh, about 100 years ago, a little more, and they lived here in London, and they were a Christian married couple. They were both long-term ill. so They both had sicknesses of various kinds. She, after she gave birth to twins when she, um, when she was young, and from that point onwards, she was basically semi-bedridden for the rest of her life. She couldn't do much. She didn't often leave the house. He uh, was a preacher. He was actually known as the Prince of Preachers, one of the great preachers London or the world has ever seen. But he, was, he had long-term illnesses. He struggled all his life with gout, with depression, and arthritis. He, he managed to write 140 books. He managed to have um, 200 million copies of his sermons published, transcribed, and distributed. And it's estimated that between 10 and 20 million people heard him live preach. He was quite a preacher. But together, their marriage, their household, which doesn't always get the most attention, was really beautiful. They, they both had these battles with illnesses. He, in one particular case, when she'd been ill in Brighton having some medical treatment, he moved his study back into the house so that he could study alongside her. He was churning out sermons, writing books, being this famous preacher while they were ill together, side by side, she on the couch, helping to distribute his sermons worldwide. She could do that from her invalid couch. And he writing sermons and ministering to people with all his illnesses. They had this marriage where they were friends working together for Christ. And they're buried side by side in West Norwood Cemetery in South London. You can go and see the grave. Charles Spurgeon, Susanna Spurgeon. And I think it's a reasonable thought that as a, at the resurrection from the dead, when the trumpet sounds and when Jesus comes back, Charles and Susanna Spurgeon, will, they'll, they'll rise together. They'll rise together to meet Jesus. The thing that they always longed for in their whole ministry, in their whole marriage was about, they'll finally see with their own eyes. And they'll rise together as friends. And they won't have a marriage covenant between them anymore. And it won't matter. Because they'll finally see the Lord Jesus. And their marriage was all about him anyway. They've been through the shadow. And they finally see the reality. Have you ever actually wondered about this? The, the resurrection, what we call the general resurrection of the dead. When everyone rises from the dead to meet Jesus. That is an issue of the power of God. God is going to raise everybody from the dead. All the graveyards in England will suddenly be populated again and the people will be, you'll see the soil moving and then you'll see people sitting up and yawning and stretching. They'll stand up. All your parents and your grandparents and your great-grandparents will open their eyes 
some of them for the first time in hundreds of years, and the irises will start firing again, and the nerve cells will be alive, and they will see again. Everyone is going to rise up and stand before Jesus Christ and have to give an account, like we were hearing in the kids' slot. And the difference then will be between the believers who believed in Jesus Christ and the unbelievers who didn't. But everyone will stand there. There's going to be this city prepared, the new Jerusalem, which is brand new. It's going to be like an Olympic village that's never been lived in. And all the believers are going to be invited to come and accommodate, live in. We are going to walk down the main street of the city with a great band of believers. None of the houses have been occupied. And we're going to be thinking, oh, I've never seen anything like this. This is like nothing I ever imagined. This is a city, but it's not a city. This is so much better. Only the power of God could have brought this about. You guys, Jesus is saying to these Sadducees here on earth, you've got this little 20 pence version of heaven. You seem to think it's just like a holiday in the Isle of Wight or something. This, this is the power of God, the resurrection of the dead. You've got no idea. It will blow your mind. In particular, seven things as we close that will be different in heaven that we learn in the scriptures, I think. Seven things that will be different and better. Firstly, no spouses. No husband, no wife, no spouses. That's what we've been learning here, so I won't dwell on it now. For some reason, Jesus says, earthly marriage will be gone. Secondly, no scriptures. I think this is true, that that when the book of Revelation says it's finished, it's done, don't add to the words of this book, that means, in a sense, we won't need this book in heaven anymore because this is the book where we used to live by faith and now we live by sight. Don't get me wrong, I think you might be able to go and read the Bible in heaven. There might be Bible museums where we hark back to what we once did on earth. But you will be able to see Jesus Christ face to face and hear his words. So I don't think we'll need scriptures in the same way. No spouses, no scriptures, no states, thirdly. There will be no nations in heaven. And for some reason, the thing, the, the national identity that I have, being British does actually occupy a reasonable part of my identity, doesn't it? It's the way you think your nationality. It's part of your cultural identity. That will gradually and forevermore cease to exist, I think, in heaven as you, we realize, oh, we're really just part of the kingdom of God here. I'm united with all the other tribes and languages and peoples and nations. So I just don't think states will matter in the same way. Nor will there be borders or boundaries or the need for international security. No spouses, no scriptures, no states, no sun. Revelation 22 verse 5, they will not need the light of the sun. There'll be no more sun because the Lord God will give them light. What? How will there be no sun? Because apart from anything else, the earth orbits the sun and that's actually how you have day and night and time and succession of moments I don't know I don't know I think the point is you don't get it this is going to be so much bigger it's going to be so different the power of God will sort it out no sun no sleep Revelation 22 verse 5 again there will be no more night I take it also with a glorified body I won't need to sleep I will never yawn again and I won't need to because I'll have this glorified body which is stronger and better and new no sun, no sleep. Sixthly, no sin. Of course, these are, the, these are the, the greatest things of all. I will no longer do stupid, selfish things every day. Instead, I will get up every day and I'll think, I'd really like to serve Jesus today, and then I'm just going to do it. 
I will just actually get on and do it. No more sin. And finally, seventhly, there'll be no more suffering. There'll be no more constant cloud of sadness around the world, whether it's my personal circumstances or whether my society or the world in general that is sad about suffering because I will have watched God make everything sad go away. I will have watched him dispense justice perfectly, awesomely against everyone who needed it. And there'll be this deep sense of satisfaction that there's an eternal peace, a shalom about this. No more suffering. I think, to be honest, those seven things, they sound wonderful in part and also a bit unsettling in part, don't they? Some of those things, no more sun, no more sleep even. I'd miss that. Of course, Jesus' point is that, do you believe God can bring about something so unimaginably powerful that I recognize those worries as something pedestrian, something insignificant, something he's able to take care of? Because of the power of God. Imagine if all the churches really believed this. I think we'd be less preoccupied with the minutiae of everyday life. And we might just have a vision of what's coming, how things are going to work out. We might just be more confident, more joyful, more watchful. As we said to each other Sunday by Sunday, week by week, It's coming. It's coming. It's nearly here. Let's pray. Almighty God, God of the resurrection, we are a hopeful people who commit ourselves to you again today in in the hope of the resurrection that's to come. Thank you that we don't have to live in in a scholastic, academic despair like the Sadducees thinking this is terribly unlikely we need to side with the fashionable people who think it won't happen we believe in the power of God and we believe in the scriptures and we are a people who we pray would stick to that hope because it is the hope for the world and it is in our resurrected Lord Jesus Christ's name that we pray Amen